Welcome to Inspiring Minds, powered by the Edison Awards, where we showcase the leading innovators from across the globe. I'm your host, Jennifer Trammell. When it comes to vaccines, one size doesn't fit all. Through the COVID-19 pandemic, we've experienced firsthand questions like how much is the right dose? How long between shots? When should a booster be given? Is it safe for children? Helping to answer those questions, Sertara's SimSip COVID-19 vaccine model. It uses biosimulation and virtual patients to optimize dosing and timing. And the technology can be applied well beyond COVID-19 for cancer therapies and Alzheimer's. Joining us from the United Kingdom, Andre Kierzek, Sertara's Head of Systems Modeling, and Pete Vandegraaff, Senior Vice President, Quantitative Systems Pharmacology. Pete, Andre, welcome to Inspiring Minds. Thank you. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Congratulations to you and to your team on winning your Bronze Edison Award. Thanks, it's been a, a real honor for us and uh, really pleased to be uh, in this uh, podcast with you. Well, we're really glad to have you here today to talk about Sertara's SimSip COVID-19 vaccine model. Our world has changed so much over the last two years with the pandemic. I don't think uh, vaccine efficacy was a phrase that came to the forefront of most people's lexicon before that. And we're learning a lot about vaccines, really that one size doesn't fit all. We're asking these questions about who should receive which doses? What's the importance of a booster? When should those doses be given? And your model really helps to address all of this. So I'm hoping you'll explain what this model does and how it helps us in our world of vaccine dosage. Okay, so maybe I should start with a general uh, a background on the use of what we call biosimulation in drug development. So um, Sitara is, is a global leader in, in providing biosimulation uh, using you know, technology and solutions that we apply to drug development programs across uh, industry. Um, so we have nearly 1,200 employees now, um, most of whom are PhDs and MDs and PharmDs. Uh, and we work with companies all over the world. Um, and really we apply biosimulation uh, or what is typically now kind of uh, uh, called model informed drug development. Um, really kind of from very early drug discovery all the way to late stage clinical development. And, and just to give you an illustration of the uptake of, of, of this approach, um, so our, our software and services have been have supported more than 90% of the FDA uh, new drug approvals in the past um, eight years. So model, model informed drug development, or as in the industry people call it MIDD, uh, you know, has been really used for many years and, and to a large extent has become part of the standard paradigm for drug development. Now, that was quite different, I think, for vaccines, uh, where until recently, I think the use of such model informed drug development, or maybe we should call it model informed vaccine development, was not very widely applied. Um, and I think um, that, at least for us, changed quite significantly 
when the COVID pandemic hit the world um, two years ago. So let's get into the specifics with COVID-19. What was the genesis of the SimSip COVID-19 vaccine model? I think we always say, like probably many people in our in our fields, um, when the COVID pandemic hit the world, everybody was asking, what are you going to do to save the world, right? Um, and, you know, people kept asking us that. And, and initially we, we said, well, to be honest, we may not have that much to offer specifically regarding COVID because first of all, our group in Satara had never worked in vaccines or infectious diseases. Um, so we initially felt, well, it's probably best for us if we just keep focusing on what we're doing, because obviously, you know, therapy development for other diseases doesn't stop. Um, now, at some point, we realized actually that we actually might have something quite significant to offer. Now, the background here is that we had been working um, in a consortium with major pharma companies for about five years or four years at that time. And what we had been doing with this uh, group of companies was to develop a large biosimulation platform that was um, to use to predict the undesired immunogenic response to the application of biological therapeutics. Now, the human body typically responds to the administration of a biological, like a antibody or a therapeutic protein by generating an immune response. Now that is obviously in the context if that, that uh, you know, biological is a drug is undesired. So we have been developing this platform that companies can, can use to, you know, predict that undesired immunological response. Now, at some point, we realized that actually a vaccine model would more or less be the same model, but the purpose would be flipped on its hat. Because basically, for vaccines, you want to some extent actually maximize or at least get a very significant immune response to the administration of a protein. So typically, when you're testing, you're trying to see, is there a reaction to this drug? And that's a reaction that you don't want. Yes. But with a vaccine, you're actually trying to incite that immune response. So you want to make sure that you are responding. Absolutely. But the human body, of course, doesn't know whether you do or don't want to see that response. It will just it will give you the response. So that made us realize that, you know, possibly we actually had a model that we could that we could apply to vaccine development. And we more or less did an experiment on the computer. So we we put in a particular part um, of the virus, which is called the spike protein, in the model, and just waited and looked what happened. And what happened is that the model actually predicted an immune response to that, which was kind of mimicking uh, a kind of vaccine uh, in a meaningful manner. So we were, we got really excited. We thought, okay, we we may be actually sitting on something real here. And from then, at that point, we decided, with support of our company, that we should be really investing in this and really kind of try and move it as fast as we could to actual application to vaccine developments. Andre, will you pick this story up for us and tell us a little bit about why this matters? By doing this type of modeling, what can we learn? So as Pete said, we, uh, we had a model 
uh, that was predicting for us uh, antibody and cellular response uh, to the protein. So the first thing that we had to do to repurpose it seriously beyond this feasibility study was to add administration of this protein, which in modern vaccines is very modern. This is either a mRNA system or adenovirus system. What this gave us is ability to predict for a particular dose amount of a vaccine and administration time, the interval between doses, we could predict how antibody and cellular response is going to look like. And because this could be predicted before clinical trial, uh, this could be used to inform decision be before very expensive clinical trial could be conducted. And in the in the field of, and the reason why it matters is that vaccines had to be developed very quickly, right decisions had to be made. So if you give too much of a vaccine, in case of vaccines, it is actually not very dangerous for patient. It's not, if you, that the vaccines vary a lot in, in the amounts that say one would have 30 microgram, another one would have 100 microgram of almost the same substance. So it's not as much the matter of risk, but if you give too high dose, then you need to manufacture more doses. And then if we want to vaccinate the world, we hit the problem of vaccine supply if we give too much. But on the other hand, giving too little is incredibly counterproductive because you would roll out massive vaccination program. People wouldn't be protected. There would be a huge confusion uh, loss of trust to vaccination because it, it wouldn't work. And then at the very end, also loss of the, of, of the doses. So it is very important to know how much vaccine to give. It is also very important to know what is the dosing interval. This is, this is the property of immune system that it is, that this dosing interval needs to be optimal. Uh, it, so, so for example, we predicted, and it was confirmed in a clinical trials, that, that a three weeks dose interval gives a bit less of immune response than eight weeks dose interval or, or, or even 12 weeks dose interval. And then on top of the strength of immune response, you have other considerations, like for example, in the United Kingdom, when uh, our government started vaccination, they wanted to give as many first doses as possible to give some protection to, to a lot of people. And, and that's why they decided to wait up to 12 weeks with the second dose. And there was a big controversy about this. So amount and interval. And in this field of very rapid, actually unprecedented drug development, uh, we found ourselves in very exciting environment because the first clinical trial data were available within months rather than, than years. That would be normal situation. So we could confront our model with this data relatively early. We could calibrate it, improve it. Then we made predictions of the trials which were not yet made. 
and then we could use data that were coming to build confidence in the model. So for example, in February, 2021, we published the plot that was showing that eight weeks interval is opt optimal in terms of maximal concentration of antibodies. In July, 2021, we learned for the first time that there was a trial called PEACH that we didn't even know about when we were making predictions that studied the effect of those interval on antibody uh, response. And actually the lead investigator of this trial was quoted saying that eight weeks is sweet spot. And of course, such a modeler blind prediction gives you a lot of confidence that the model is actually working. And in parallel, we were already working with, with our client where we actually informed the decision about the choice of, of dosing interval. And this, uh, our prediction was, was communicated to regulators. So using this information in conjunction with clinical trials, really helps us to get to better answers sooner. It helps us to know how much of a dose should we be giving so that it's enough to be effective, but not more than is needed so that we're wasting. It helps us understand that timing of when should you get your first shot? When should you get your second shot for maximum um, effectiveness? So I wanna understand more about the actual model. Is it comparing individual people You've had some kind of persona that's that's part of the modeling, right? Yes. So we we definitely recognize that every person is different, and and this is this is important in all our fields of of biosimulation. So what we do, we use very big databases of. Uh, physiological and anatomical information. So these are databases of, of the organ sizes, body weights, uh, blood flows, numbers of immune system cells, your white blood cell counts. And we use these databases to create what we call virtual patients. So virtual patients is is a model where you set specific body weight, organ sizes, blood flows, numbers of cells. And then for these very specific patients, we run our simulation. And this we call virtual patient simulation. We, we apply the doses and then we do it for a number of virtual patients. And the output of this constitutes our virtual trial which we then analyze in exactly the same way as when clinicians analyze real trial. So we show them predicted output in the, in the same way as they would like to see it. And, and in this way, we inform decisions. So by all means, we recognize that everybody is different. Another important thing here is that we can create virtual populations. So for example, we cre can create population of people who are children. And then we can, we can ask the question, how is it going to work in children? Uh, for our first client, we spent quite a lot of effort thinking, how is it going to work for old people? Because, because for COVID, uh, the age was a major risk factor. And we were thinking, is it going to be specific dosing regime for uh, for older people. Now, now again, kind of simulations for children come to, to, uh, to first priority, to, to interest. A lot of people are, are asking about that. 
Absolutely. People are very curious. What is the right answer for children? What dose should they be getting? How soon? How often? Um, so this kind of modeling along with clinical trials is helping to answer that question. Absolutely. I think Andre's point about, you know, so the output of our models are what we call virtual patients. So basically what we can do with our model, we can simulate the response of a person um, on the computer to a, a novel drug or a vaccine. And we call it virtual patient because obviously it's not an actual patient, it's one generated on the computer. And we can generate lots of virtual patients. And then what we do, we, we generate a virtual clinical trial. Now, why, so why would you want to do that? Now, first of all, we can do that, you know, before you run an actual clinical trial to inform the, you know, design of the clinical trial. For example, what is the best dose of a vaccine? And we can run hundreds of clinical trials on our computer to kind of explore that question before you do the clinical trial. As, as uh, you know, Andre said, the key question that we answered very early on was this question of when is the best time to give your booster dose, the second dose? And then also we've been exploring when would you need your third dose and maybe a fourth dose? You know, we can answer questions like, um, you know, is this particular vaccine still going to be as efficacious against novel variants? Um, and then the really exciting applications, as Andre said, is that we can, we can create different virtual patients. For example, we can create virtual patients that mimic children and even very young children or the opposite, elderly, and then answer, try to answer questions. Should you be giving different doses in elderly and children? And it was recently, uh, last month, uh, Andre and I were interviewed in uh, in Nature. On a, they had an uh, an article on well use of modeling and simulation in vaccine developments. And in that in that uh, article, the uh, the author kind of um, states that arguably the fact that such models had not been used as widely as we could have done some of the uh, trials in very early in very young children actually were unsuccessful because ba basically people chose too low a dose um, now th that dose as far as we know was not based on using modeling and simulation and were, was kind of you know calculated in a different manner but that is an example where i think we feel yeah and the author states that arguably, despite the phenomenal success of the vaccine development, right? I mean, this has been unprecedented that, you know, we, we managed to develop vaccines within a year. That has ne never happened. It's an incredible success. But still, arguably, we could have done better. And I think that was something that we, we feel very strongly about, and which is why we're, we're now so glad that we're using this model in actual vaccine development. You hate to see wasted time or wasted resources or a trial that, that just would put patients at risk in any way. Um, but in this case, like you said, it was too low of a dose to not really hit the effectiveness level that we needed. So well, you just see the opportunity to do better. Absolutely. So certainly the example of the, the, the more recent trials in, in very young children, which is obviously a very, very difficult group in general for you know vaccine or medicine development. So they're obviously very vulnerable. They are very different in terms of their biology compared to elderly. But certainly it, it seems like yeah we lost time and opportunity there by not using everything that we knew at that stage. Uh, the other one is the, the, the point that I think everyone agrees now that the initial uh, 
interval between the first and the second dose for the, the two first vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna for three and four weeks was too short. Now, they were still highly efficacious, so I don't think people necessarily kind of feel, well, that was a major kind of mistake. But arguably, we could have had better efficacy and better protection if we would have kind of used the model and increased that interval um, to a longer time. Andre, will you tell us more about the team who has developed this modeling and kind of their expertise, how this all came together? Uh, so, so our team is uh, very interdisciplinary. Uh, the colleagues in Sertara come from, from various backgr backgrounds. Bio, biomedical engineering is quite, quite common background, mathematics, physics. I actually graduated molecular biology, but then I became what is, uh, what is known uh, computational biologist. Uh, so, so we worked with, uh, just to mention uh, a few names, Mario Giorgi worked on, uh, on the IG consortium and then uh, Vasin Simulator, Rajat uh, Desikan uh, contributed uh, also quite a lot. Uh, but, uh, and they are biomedical engineer and physicist by, by background. But it is also very important that we work very closely with our clients. So that with actual, uh, with teams that develop actual vaccines and they bring in even broader expertise because they bring in uh, clinical expertise, expertise about the, their particular project. And over there we have preclinical -pre biologists, immunologists, uh, clinical people. So it is all about uh, interaction in interdisciplinary environment. First of all, I mean, this was obviously a huge team effort, right? So, um, and particularly the building blocks to what I mentioned when we were been developing this platform model that initially wasn't focused on vaccines, but on immunogenicity. I mean, that involved hundreds and hundreds of people over, over many years. Um, quite remarkably, when we pivoted that model towards vaccine, that actually was only a very small uh, team at that point. Um, and, and sometimes people ask me, so what was the, ingredient for success, you know, how did you manage to kind of respond so quickly and really develop something so, you know, quite remarkably in a short period of time. So first of all, I think it's just, we have a unique mix of talent, right? We have people with very different backgrounds that all kind of, you know, come together in this biosimulation uh, space. And <laughs> obviously that's a, you know, you have to have people who are incredibly talented like Andre and others. Um, I also think, you know, in Sitara, we, at that point, people were very supportive and there was a culture that they allowed us to take a risk because this was unsupported in, in, in the first instance. We didn't have a client supporting this. This was entirely something we strongly believed in. And obviously, if our company has said, well, yeah, that's fine, but, you know, we, we need to wait and see, it wouldn't have happened. So there was a, a real support that people said, okay, we can see this and, you know, we support this and you can take a risk. And that is really a key to success for driving um, innovation. And then finally, I think the question, well, how did you manage to do this? I think we are incredibly focused and purpose-driven. 
And we really believe that we should focus on what we're really good at, which is biosimulation. That is really what we can kind of bring to the table. And there's obviously many other experts who bring other things to the table, but we just really focus on that bit that we believe we are incredibly good at. Innovation is really at the heart of your team and at the heart of the Edison Awards. Yes. How do you help teams to foster innovation? How do you encourage that? Well, as I said, in the first place, this was very much um, something that you have to support, particularly at a time where, you know, you're doing something that no one's done before. Um, there's obviously a risk it will fail. And as said, at this point, um, we didn't actually have a client who said, yeah, we want you to do this for us. So this was entirely kind of at Satara's risk in the first instance. Now, that is really key to setting a culture and a basis for innovation because obviously if you wouldn't have that we would not have done it and we would have gone on and we would have done something else but not not this um so i think the, the other ingredient i think is that um you, you know we are well we as individuals and as a company we're in incredibly purpose-driven i think you know really our our goal is to use biosimulation to better people's lives, right? That is ultimately what we're really trying to do. And we do that through exciting science and incredible innovation. But at the end of the day, what really drives people is say, look, this really, really makes a difference. And I think that makes so many people really tick and they say, yeah, that's really the environment I want to work in. Thanks for sharing more of your culture with us. Um, and really it's led to some pretty incredible developments by taking that risk. So I'm wondering how can this technology be used in the future? What are other applications that we can expect biosimulation to make a difference for in our lives? So, so Pete, may I start with kind of short-term future about COVID and then you can expand. So what, what changed massively about COVID from the point of view of development of new vaccine is that clinical trials are much, much more difficult to conduct. Because first of all, uh, the patients will have very different COVID background. There are very few people in Western world now who didn't see COVID either in the form of the vaccine or in the form of infection or like me in, in actually both capacities. I, I, I had three doses and I, I was also infected, which was then incredibly, incredibly mild thanks uh, thanks to all this vaccination. So it's very difficult to be to design a kind of clinical trial like it was in the beginning that everybody are naive and respond to vaccine. Also at the very beginning, uh, people were highly motivated to volunteer for these trials. Now it will of course change a little bit. And in some cases, people may even have problem that if they get vaccinated with experimental vaccine, it may not give them vaccine certificate that they, they, they need to do something like travel to, uh, to, to certain country for, for example. So clinical trials are much, much more difficult to conduct now. So there is much higher need, I would say, to supplement clinical trials by biosimulation. And because it's not first time we do the trial, because we have all this unprecedented data, biosimulation is more reliable 
uh, then uh, we have more confidence in this that we had at the very beginning and trials are much more difficult to conduct. So I think that for new vaccines that we really need because we still didn't vaccinate the world and we, we need to, we need to keep vaccinating ourselves against COVID. So for these new vaccines, I think that, that our simulator applied as it was to the same question, what is those dosing interval in, in children, ad, adults, elderly, that, that it is very, very useful now. A continuation first with COVID-19, because yeah. we still have a lot of questions to answer. And as you mentioned, Andre, those clinical trials are becoming more difficult to conduct. So supplementing with the biosimulation gives us opportunities to learn and make good decisions going forward. Absolutely, yeah. We as the world were completely taken by surprise two years ago, right? It just, just came out of the blue and, and it, it just happens. Now, we don't know what's gonna happen with COVID over time, right? But I think we should now be prepared. We have learned so much. We can be ready for you know whatever comes next in in COVID, and clearly, we we can't afford to then kind of run massive clinical trials again and wait and see. You know, that we can now kind of really start to kind of be ready for when hopefully not, but who knows, another wave kind of hits the world, and we can really move fast in part because we can use biosimulation to really kind of minimize the actual clinical trials that are needed to kind of convince ourselves that these vaccines are efficacious and safe. So for example, we, we, we have been doing simulations of, you know, when would you need to give your, your third or fourth or fifth dose, you know, we can run these trials for virtual trials for like years, right? So we already have simulated, you know, 2024 in our model. Um, so we can already kind of use that uh, understanding. At some point, we became really interested in can you mix vaccines? Because at some point, obviously, because of the supply issues, um, people may might have received vaccine A for the first and second dose, but that for the third dose, that vaccine was no longer available, particularly in the UK, that was the case. And then the question is, well, can you, can you mix vaccines? Uh, and if so, what is the best combination? So all of these things we can we can run virtual trials for, and we can kind of give answers well before you run the trial. And what about beyond COVID-19? What are the opportunities for other diseases, other treatments? Yeah. So first, if we just stay with, well, vaccines maybe, um, and, and then we can even broaden it out. So, well, to some extent, I think the story that we had around realizing we were sitting on a platform, a simulation platform that we could repurpose, I think to some extent that was also the case for the companies that were the first to develop the mRNA vaccines. I don't think they were necessarily thinking about COVID. Um, they were really kind of developing this, you know, specific technology for other diseases like cancer. Um, same story, I think, COVID hits the world. They realized they could quickly, re, you know, repurpose their platform and, and move it towards COVID. But clearly the, the, their whole focus on diseases like cancer is still there. And we are actually working on such, you know, where you basically start to think about somewhat vaccines for cancer. So that is obviously a very novel and, and, and exciting concept. And, and the ideas uh, in terms of the technology are very similar. We also have biosimulation platforms for 
cancer, for example, so we can actually create virtual patients and, and look at therapies for cancer. So we are now kind of combining the, the lessons from our vaccine platform, our cancer platform, combining them. And now we can say, okay, we can actually also do that. So that's if we stay within. And obviously there's other, many other applications in vaccines for infectious diseases. I mean, let's not forget that despite the phenomenal success story of the speed of development for COVID vaccines, the flip side is typically true for most other diseases like malaria and other infectious diseases where vaccine development takes incredible long time. I mean, we're talking years, if not, if not decades. So we really think that the same principles can also be transferred to help develop vaccines for other you know, uh, terrible diseases like, for example, malaria. This makes me think, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste and look at all of the learning that's come out of the last two years and how that can help us in other areas. We also work in many other, you know, disease areas which are, are not related to vaccine development or COVID or infectious diseases. For example, let me just give one example, neuroscience and Alzheimer's. So we have also developed a biosimulation platform for Alzheimer's disease, where we can actually create virtual patients with Alzheimer's and then look at, at you know, impact of, of potential therapies for, uh, you know, for that you know, awful disease. We have actually also used that platform in COVID. So what happens in COVID is, which didn't get as much airtime, is that many, that a lot of clinical trials had to stop particularly the ones involving elderly and frail patients, because in lockdown, they just couldn't go anywhere. So they couldn't actually get to the clinic to uh, you know, get their new medication, to be tested. So a lot of trials were actually halted uh, during, during the COVID pandemic. And that is, was particularly impactful for trials that sometimes take years to run, like in Alzheimer's disease. So here you have clinical trials that take literally years to run because obviously you need to monitor patients uh, over a long period of time. So one of our clients came to us and said, well, can you, know, can you help me? We had to stop the trial. That trial had been running for a considerable amount of time. When we can restart the trial, we have to decide either to start from, from scratch, which would be terrible, terrible for the company, terrible for the patients, terrible for everyone. Can you help us? Can you create virtual patients to bridge the time from when we stopped the trial to when we started again. So we don't have to start again, but we basically use your virtual patients. So what we did is we actually created what we call virtual twins. So for each actual patient, we literally cloned that patient on the computer. So now the virtual patient becomes literally a twin of the actual patient. And we said, well, our computer model predicts that this patient would have kind of progressed like, like this. When the trial restarted, they could basically use that and start from, from there. So that's another, very different example, but again, in the context of COVID, how biosimulation can really help. I hadn't really thought about that. You know, all of the work that was in progress that was disrupted by the pandemic. So this gives you that bridge during that time period and new opportunities to learn and discover how people or virtual patients would react. For me, what is what is very exciting here. Uh, as a molecular biologist by university background is, is just a progress to, to basic knowledge about immune system that was uh, brought in by, by uh, COVID uh, uh, 
research and also development of some very modern drug platforms like for a, for example a mRNA platform so so lipid nanoparticle mRNAs were in development for quite a long time but but it's only COVID-19 was actually COVID-19 vaccine was the first medicine approved with, with this way of of delivering drug, but it's very universal way of delivering drug. You can deliver any protein in this way. Uh, and uh, it can be vaccine for other diseases. It can be cancer vaccine. It can be protein therapeutic for any disease. And, and I, I think that this is major development. And from uh, our point of view, from biosimulation point of view, we simply learned how to simulate this platform. So we are kind of ready for the future where we expect that these new tools will be applied more and more frequently. Like years ago, there was this transition from small molecule drugs to, to monoclonal antibodies. As now, now we expect some some other modalities, these modern modalities, to to be applied more and more frequently, and we we are ready for that. So ultimately, does this type of modeling get us to customized medicine? You could know, you know, Jennifer Trammell has, you know, this weight, this age, these markers, and any treatment could be customized to that person. Absolutely. I used the example uh, earlier for the, the Alzheimer trial where we said, well, we can actually really individualize the, the virtual patient concept and, and make it virtual twins. So that literally means, yeah, we, we can clone you, Jennifer, on the computer and try to kind of mimic your you know, response to therapeutics as, as best as we can. And that will be different from the virtual twin that from Andre and different from the virtual twin from me. So that is a concept that we are probably most excited about because first of all, um, it, it, it really kind of opens the door to what people call personalized medicine, um, which really means that, you know, every individual should expect to get the best medicine and at the best dose and the best dosing regimen. And in many instances, we still use a one size fits all approach, um, which clearly kind of means that that, that people at the kind of extreme of the kind of average response will probably not be served particularly well by that. Now, the, the area where we are already doing this um, is in rare diseases. So rare diseases are, well, as the name says, kind of diseases where you only have very few people, uh, you know, with that, you know, particular disease. And when I say very few, that could be less than 100 people in the whole world, right? So think about doing a clinical trial for such a disease. So first of all, you only have very, very few patients in the first place. And secondly, um, you know, one approach that is really kind of generating a lot of excitement is, is called gene therapy, because a lot of these rare diseases, kind of the basis for them are a defect in a, in a single gene. So it's something that you, in principle at least, can really kind of solve with gene therapy. Now, a clinical trial for such a you know, rare disease may only involve 10 people, the whole clinical development program. Um, the other thing is that, for example, in gene therapy, you typically can only give one shot in every patient. Um, so you need to get it right first time in every patient. 
Now, that is obviously taking getting the dose right to a whole new kind of level. Um, and we ha actually have been working with companies on, on implementing our virtual patients for such cases where we basically say, okay, in a clinical trial, can we actually, based on what we know from the first patients, predict the exact dose for the next patient based on their gender, their age, their body morphometry, their uh, you know, ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera. So this is already something we have been doing. We have indeed been submitting this to regulatory agencies and they can clearly see that this is almost a must given the fact you have only so few patients, you need to get it right. So you really need to throw the kitchen sink at these trials and make sure that you really, really do everything you can to get it right. Andre, let me wrap up by asking, what was the team's reaction when they found out you'd won an Edison Award? Oh, we were we were incredi incredibly happy. So, so you know, most of us are uh, are scientists, so we usually celebrate getting uh, research publications. So this was very new for the team, uh, and yes, we were we were we were very happy. Yeah. Well, congratulations to you to the team. Thank you for your work that's really affecting all of us as we think not just about COVID-19, but about other diseases and, and future applications for this kind of modeling. Great to have you guys with us today. Thank you, Thank you so much. <laughs> You've been listening to Inspiring Minds, powered by the Edison Awards, showcasing the leading innovators from across the globe. I'm Jennifer Trammell. Thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to having you join us for our next conversation with another inspiring innovator.